complete freaks of nature, to put it plainly, um, but was their work ethic and their fear of being average. A year ago, uh, there was the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant, and after that, there was countless and countless stories that you could see all over social media, all throughout the news, stories of Kobe Bryant, his work ethic, and how hard he would work. One in particular that came to mind was before an all-star game, he was out there for two hours warming up before anybody else went out there to warm up. But the first um, person I really want to look in depth at as far as him being willing to go above and beyond is LeBron James. LeBron James, uh, many would consider to be the best athlete, the best uh, basketball player in the league at this point in time. But LeBron is, yes, one known for his athletic ability, but he's also very much known for the amount of time and effort he puts into himself, both physically and mentally. According to Business Insider, LeBron James spends over $1.5 million per year just to take care of his body. So this includes food, chefs, um, trainers, recovery, the whole nine yards. $1.5 million every 365 days. I can't imagine blowing through $1.5 million in one year, but I guess if you've got the money, you can, uh, you can do it. But you might ask, why? Why spend so much time, why spend so much money and resources on taking care of yourself? I'm sure deep down, somehow, some way, part of it, maybe he just wants to look good. Um, I'm sure that does play a role, but I believe that the biggest reason is because his care that he has put into his body has allowed him to sit at the top of the NBA for 18 long years, which is unheard of in professional sports, aside from Tom Brady. But he does it because he is willing to do more than just be the average player. He does it because he is not content with just being another freak athlete. He wants to be one of the best to ever do it. And the other, who many would consider to be the greatest of all time, is Michael Jordan, is another individual who comes to mind whenever I think about going above and beyond what is asked of you. And um, in a recent documentary that was released about Michael Jordan and his championship uh, Bulls team titled The Last Dance, there are countless moments all throughout uh, the number of episodes where he answers different questions about his work ethic and a number of different people within the Bulls organization and um, those that were around him in high school and college talk about his work ethic. And one story in particular that uh, sticks out to me was in 1982, Michael Jordan was a freshman. He just showed up on campus at the University of North Carolina. So he's a teenager. He thinks he knows it all, Um, even though at the time he wasn't even the best player on his team. But he made it known very, very well to everyone around him. And I can imagine um, being an upperclassman and hearing this freshman talk on and on and on about the lofty goals that he had set for himself and that he was not okay with just being another player. And for anyone who knows about sports or who watches sports, just being a Division I athlete is hard enough on its own, Um, something that's very hard to do, and less than 1% of high school athletes go on to play at the Division I level. So for many people, this itself would have even been the ultimate end goal. But for Michael Jordan, it was just the beginning. And very early on, he told assistant coach Roy Williams, who is now the head coach 
uh, for the University of North Carolina basketball team, that he wanted to be the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Williams responded by saying that if he wanted to be the best, he would have to work harder than he ever had in high school and he had ever worked in his entire life. Jordan responded probably in a way that most teenagers would have responded, thinking that they know everything and trying to uh, impress their superiors. Jordan responded by saying that there's no need to worry. I worked just as hard as everybody else in high school. Excuse me, Coach Williams responded. I thought you told me you wanted to be the the greatest player ever, pointing out that working just as hard as everyone else wasn't quite going to cut it. To which Michael Jordan replied, I am going to show you nobody will ever work as hard as I work. And as they say, the rest is history. And the reason why is because Michael Jordan didn't want to be just good enough. He wasn't content with where he was. And he wanted to be the absolute best that he could be and do everything he could to reach his full potential. So I promise I'm done talking about basketball and the NBA. I won't. I won't bring up anything else about that, I promise. But I can't help but think, as Christians, imagine what would happen if we had that same mentality. The mentality that I want to be more than just average. A mentality where we are not content and where we never grow comfortable in where we are in this moment, but rather we strive to do more to see our future move forward with our walk with God and for his kingdom. So getting into the more biblical stuff, um, getting away from the carnal sports and stuff. In youth class the past couple weeks, and I promise young people I'm not going to talk about this the whole time, so you're not hearing this all over again. We've been talking about Daniel, and more specifically, looking at life in Babylon for the Israelites. We looked at how the Israelites were in bondage, but under the Babylonians, that bondage was a little bit different than that from the bondage that we saw in Egypt. In Egypt, the Israelites are treated much, much more harshly. Um, They are not cared for. Um, In Exodus, we read of a pharaoh who had forgotten about Joseph and forgotten of all of his accomplishments and had put slave masters over the Israelites and forced them into harsh labor and bondage. But you see, in Babylon, things were a little bit different. Yes, the Israelites were still in bondage, but it was a lot more subtle as opposed to what we see In Egypt, which leads me to the first passage of scripture I'm going to be looking at is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And it reads, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years 
And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names Daniel, he called Belshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. So again, we see here, unlike in Egypt, where there is um, a clear difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. There's a clear hierarchy. Um, Unlike in Egypt, here in Babylon, we see very early on that some of the best and the brightest of the Israelites are being used in the Babylonian kingdom. They're being brought to the palace. So we see this huge difference between how the Egyptians treated them and how the Babylonians treated them. Like I said, Egypt, they hated the Jews. Pharaoh wanted to make it very, very clear that the Jews were not Egyptians, they would never be Egyptians, and that they were, in fact, because of this, a lesser people. The Egyptians would then create an atmosphere of contention between themselves and the Jews. All right, the Babylonians, however, young people, we talked about this, incorporated the Jews into their culture. And Pastor talked about this very briefly in his message on Sunday. But the Babylonians, they took, like I said, they took the smartest of the young people, they brought them into the king's palace, and they began to educate them in the way that all Babylonians were educated. All right? They also fed the Jews directly from the king's table, which is much, much different from what you see in Egypt. You also then see some of the Jews that are going to be set up as governors over other Israelites. So in essence, the Jews are treated more like Babylonians than they are treated like Israelites. But one of the reasons why I believe that the Babylonians set things up this way and treated the Jewish people differently was because they had seen how things had worked out for the Egyptians. So in essence, I believe that they felt that they could make the Israelites comfortable where they were at, and if they could make the Israelites content with where they were at, they would not have to worry about them as much. In class, we talked about how in today's world, we live very, very much in a Babylon-like culture, a culture that will try to change our, our identities. They'll try to change who we are, a culture that will challenge us as we try to practice our faith, and a culture that will do everything it can to get us to be comfortable with the world and to be comfortable with where we are at. And as Christians, the last thing that we can do is be comfortable with where we are. We are living in a world that is not content with who we are. They're not content with where we are as a church. So for that very reason, we cannot be content in our own personal lives and we cannot forget that we are called to reach this world. And we are called to spread the gospel to every single person on this planet. And because of this, we cannot ever, ever become content with where we are at. But as I move forward, I think of other individuals in the Bible who were not content with where they were at, or in certain instances, were not content with their situation. And one of the people that comes to mind was, again, someone that Pastor brought up on Sunday, was Jacob, in one encounter in particular. So if you'll look at the next passage of scripture that I want to bring up is Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 29. And I'll read through this real quick, and then I'll kind of 
break it down a little bit more. But it says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And like I said, on Sunday, Pastor briefly uh, mentioned this encounter, but to kind of summarize what is going on, Jacob is about to see his brother Esau for the very first time. Pastor talked about Jacob being the deceiver, and he's deceived his brother, took everything that belonged to him, his birthright, all of his promises. So for the very first time, he is about to come face-to-face with his brother Esau. All right, so because of this, obviously, Jacob is a little bit scared. All younger siblings should be a little bit scared of their older siblings, regardless if you've deceived them or not. So, Reagan, if you, uh, if you do end up watching this, remember it doesn't matter how big you get. The, uh, the oldest brother does always win. So, so rightfully so, Jacob is a little bit afraid. So, Jacob sends his servants ahead to send gifts to kind of uh, maybe sweeten Esau up a little bit. And then he goes as far to send his wives and his children ahead of him. And he is, now finds himself completely alone in the camp. How many know sometimes whenever you feel completely alone is right before you're about to have an amazing encounter with God? Amen? That's, a, that's another sermon for another time. But Jacob finds himself... Uh, a man comes into the camp, and he finds himself wrestling with an angel. I know for a fact uh, Zach wrestles, kind of catching him off guard. Um, but has anyone else ever wrestled, whether it be in school, whether it's just with a sibling, show of hands, a couple of you? Okay, actually quite a bit. Surely most of you have wrestled with siblings. I saw Mallory raise her hand. So... But if you've ever wrestled, again, whether it was at school or whether it was with a sibling, if you've ever wrestled, you know just how exhausting wrestling can be when you do it for a long period of time. I, uh, sometime back when I was younger, I lost a dare and ended up having to wrestle for a year. Hated every second of it. But the reason why is because wrestling is very, very hard work. All right? It is... Um, physically demanding, and it is both physically and mentally exhausting, especially whenever you wrestle for a long period of time. But despite this, Jacob refused to give up and was not content with where he was at and was not content, and I think probably just a little bit competitive, and was not willing to give up. He was fearful of what lied ahead of him, and because of that, he had sent everybody else ahead of him but he stayed in his comfort zone. So Jacob wrestled with the angel until morning, and he refused to let go until he was blessed. And because of this, we read that his name was changed to Israel, and he was blessed. But why was he blessed? Not because he was a good wrestler, nothing like that. He was blessed because he refused to let go until he was changed, because he was not content with where he was 
and refused to let go until he saw that change take place. Continuing to move on, uh, Pastor has been teaching the past couple weeks about discipleship on Wednesday nights. And as I was studying for tonight, I, I couldn't help but think about what if the disciples had just been content with where they were at? What if they would have stayed where they were at? What if when Jesus called out to Simon and Andrew at the Sea of Galilee, what if they would have said no? What if when Jesus called out to every other disciple, what if they would have said no? They had lives. They had jobs. They might not have been fun jobs, but they very easily could have stayed comfortable in where they were at. All right, But they made a choice to follow after Jesus. And if we are to be disciples, we cannot be content with where we are right now. We can't be content with our walk, and if we are going to reach the lost in our cities, we cannot continue to just go through the motions. It's so easy for us sometimes. I'm, I'm guilty of it. And again, we have, like I said, we have an amazing church. We have an amazing, amazing church. But it's so easy for us sometimes, even me personally, to just, you come in on a Sunday, you come in on a Wednesday, you walk through the back doors, you clock in, we come, we sit, we sing, we listen to the word, and, and we don't even mean to do it, but we just find ourselves going through the motions, and we forget often what we have been sent and called on this earth to do. All right, we haven't been called. Church is very, very important. Don't mistake what I'm saying. We're not called to come sit on a pews two nights a week and then not do anything the rest of the week. We're called to go out, to go forth, and preach the gospel to every tongue and to every nation. So we can't stop there. We can't be content. If we're going to reach our cities, if we're going to change our cities, and if we're going to see revival in this church, we cannot be comfortable with where we are now. We can't stop right here. We have to be committed to avoiding being content with where we are spiritually, because this is a constant battle. It's a constant walk, and it's a marathon in which we must keep running as the world around us continues to grow darker and darker. And I'm, I'm kind of starting to wrap things up a little bit, but before I do that, I do want to go through um, one more passage of Scripture. Um, I want to talk about the parable of the talents. And this is um, probably a pretty familiar passage. I remember hearing it constantly in Sunday school. But this parable tells of a master who is leaving his home for a certain time period. But before he leaves, what does he do? He leaves his property to some of his servants. And sometimes it's really easy. Uh, I know I always struggled with it in our more modern understanding of things and in the English language whenever we hear of the parable of the talents. Whenever we think of a talent, we think, okay, I can play the guitar, or I can sing, and do so on and so forth. But this parable, whenever it refers to talents, is referring to something of value, okay? It's talking about money. And this parable comes right after, not mistakenly, right after the parable of the ten virgins and the return of the bridegroom, which we very, very clearly understand is talking about the return of Jesus. And this parable is talking about the exact same thing. So I will, I'll try to get through this um, rather quickly, but it starts at Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And it goes like this, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. 
To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. And to another, one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received just the one talent, what did he do with it? He went and he dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when I read this parable, I will be completely honest. It's a parable that keeps me awake at night. This is a parable that should keep us awake at night because whenever we look at it from the context rather than what am I good at, what am I talented at, we see the deeper meaning behind it. The two servants who were not satisfied with what they had, who were not content with the five talents, who were not content with the two talents, what did they receive? They received hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But the servant who was content, the servant who was comfortable with what he had already been given to him, who was too afraid of how it might look on him if he went out to try and increase what the master had already placed him over. What did he hear? He heard, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew I was coming, but you didn't do anything about it. This parable should shake us. Again, as I, um, as I kind of close out here, it should challenge us and it should keep us awake at night, knowing that the third servant was cast into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth because he was content with what he already had. He was comfortable with what he had and was too afraid and too comfortable to try and do any more 
than what the master had already given to him. He wasn't cast into outer darkness because he was a murderer. He wasn't cast into outer darkness because he was a thief. He wasn't cast out because he was an adulterer. He was cast out because of his unwillingness to move beyond the state of being content with what he already had. And again, I say this is something that shakes me. This is something that challenges me. That if I'm not doing enough with what God has already given me, if I'm not doing enough with the walk and the relationship that I have with God, what does that mean? Because according to this parable, it means something very, very scary. Something that we need to let sink in. We should want more with our walk with God. We should want more for his kingdom in these last days. In the past couple of weeks, if you, if you want to go ahead and stand, the past couple of weeks I have felt so strongly in my spirit. As I already said, I told Pastor before, I truly felt that this was a message and a word that I did receive through prayer. And I believe that God is pushing his church to move beyond what is comfortable to move beyond what we're already doing, to not grow comfortable and move us beyond a state of being content with where we are at and what we are already doing for his kingdom. Again, I already, I have felt challenged and convicted by through this to not just go through the motions, to not be just content with where I am at, both at this church and in my own personal life, but to desire even more. So tonight before I uh, hand this over to Pastor and he can clean all this up. I challenge you for tonight and for the rest of this week and for the rest of this year to not be comfortable with where you are at. Ask yourself, what more can I do to not only grow in my relationship with God? Obviously, that's very, very important. But what more can I do to help further his kingdom? Amen. I want, we're going we're gonna to end this night with just a time of prayer. But before we do, I just want to say, and if we could really grasp that, if we can really understand that we can find contentment in God. We, we can find contentment as far as the things in this world should not satisfy us. But God, the deeper and deeper we get into God, we become content with God and not the things of the world. But the more that we get into what, where God is at, more and more we get impressed to say, where God is saying, go, 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 go. When you've got more that you can accomplish, you've got more that you can do. Amen. And we, we cannot be satisfied. We, in, in, the, in this world with the things that we have, it's so easy here in America to just be satisfied and content with the blessings of God. But the blessings of God are not, are not to be the things that we are content with. They should push us to say, all right, God, I, we need to reach somebody else. God, we need to go. And I need to know you deeper. I need to know you. Come on, at a, at a, at a, Come on, more than I've ever known you before. I'm inspired by the way that the apostles and the disciples in the book of Acts, we see them in the midst of persecution. The church grew. The church multiplied in the midst of persecution. 
Amen. They weren't content. They, they said, I know I may be persecuted for this, but I've got to tell somebody. It's like Jeremiah where he said, it's like fire shut up in my bones and I've got to tell somebody about this. Come on, if there can be something inside of us that would drive us to say, come on, let me not be content with the blessings of God. Let me not be content just with where I'm at right now and where, where I'm comfortable. But Lord, I need, I need more of you, God, and I need somebody else, Lord, to know what you have to offer. This is about life or death. This is about heaven or hell. Amen. Can we just all all around this place slip a hand up in the air? Or if you want to make your way to an altar, you can come up to an altar. Amen. God, Lord, help us, Lord, help us, God, to not be content. Lord, drive us, Lord, to, to something greater, to something deeper. Lord, there is, God, there are those right now who are lost. And God, they are there. When, if they were to die, God, they would be heading for hell, God. But we have a message of hope. God, we have a message of truth. Lord, let us, Lord, be disciple makers. God, let us not be content with just the people that are sitting in these pews right now. God, there is more. There is greater things that are yet to come. God, I believe that you have greater things. That we are on the precipice of revival. But Lord, it won't come if we're content with our prayer life. It won't come if we're content with our praise. It won't, con- it won't come if we're just content with where we're at. But Lord, we must get more. We must do more. Hallelujah, Jesus. Lord, draw us to you, God. Lord, help us, Lord Jesus, not to be satisfied. Lord, but let us, God, continue to strive, Lord, and Lord, want more of you. Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Yeah. Uh-huh.